Apollo 13 astronaut Fred Hayes, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. That's how it started. It would become the greatest rescue in the history of space travel, NASA's successful failure. We'll hear about Apollo 13 from the inside as we talk for nearly an hour with Fred Hayes. Fred will share many other stories, including his early work on the space shuttle and what would become the International Space Station. They are documented in his new and excellent memoir, Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 astronaut's journey, written with Bill Moore. You'll get the chance to win a copy of Fred's book when we welcome Bruce Betts for this week's What's Up. The Humans to Mars Summit returns to Washington, D.C. on May 17th. This three-day conference from our friends at Explore Mars will host an amazing collection of Martians, including NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, the Director of NASA's Planetary Science Division, Lori Glaze, Inspiration4 astronaut Cyan Proctor, astronaut and artist Nicole Stott, and many other people you've heard on Planetary Radio. I'll be there co-hosting the webcast with Beth Mund of Casual Space and moderating a couple of panels. I'd love to see you at the summit. You can check out the entire lineup and register at exploremars.org summit. Here's a reminder that there's a new edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter, every Friday. You'll find it at planetary.org downlink. There's a link to our really wonderful light sail documentary in the April 8th posting, along with a story about a French company called Gamma that wants to build its own light sails. They credit the Planetary Society's successful light sail, too, for their effort and hope to build on our design. Godspeed, Gamma. Fred Hayes will turn 89 in November of this year. He's lucky to have made it past 36. That's how old he was when he, Commander Jim Lovell, and Jack Swigert set out for the moon on the third attempt to land there. Fred had helped develop the lunar module that he would pilot. Of course, they never touched down on the moon, but that lunar module, nicknamed Aquarius, would save their lives. The mission is only one of the many adventures Fred has experienced and documented in his new book. We talked online a few days ago. By the way, you'll hear a technical hiccup that I decided to leave in the interview for reasons that should become obvious when you hear it. Fred Hayes, it is a tremendous honor to be able to talk to you today on Planetary Radio. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us on the show. You're very welcome. I like your hat. Oh, so do I. Thank you, my Planetary Society cap. We'll, we'll get you one of those if you want one. Uh, we're a bunch of space fans like uh, like you are, and I am a big fan of your new book, Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 Astronaut's Journey. That title, Never Panic Early, it pops up over and over and over in the book. What did you mean by that title? Well, it, it's like you have uh, problems of some kind that come up or up. It doesn't have to be in an airplane or even in space. As you saw in the book, it could be uh, all at once a family emergency. Somebody yeah. uh, suddenly has an accident or whatever. Uh, you should never do anything uh, drastic too soon. Yeah, so you really need to stop and 
survey the situation in the case of an aircraft, a spacecraft, look at all the systems, look at the meters and try to figure out better what, what really went wrong. So when you take action, you take the right action uh, to not make the problem worse, but to really uh, work at uh, solving the problem at hand. I suspect that's going to come up again, not just when we talk about uh, your Apollo mission, but uh, also some of the other events that have happened in your life. Uh, let's start at the beginning, though, because the book begins way back there. You were a pretty cute kid growing up there in Biloxi, Mississippi. Yeah, it was a small town, uh, 14,000 people at the time, and quiet. It was kind of town, uh, you know, you were pretty free to run around, a child run around anywhere. I, I was pretty loose during the day to uh, if I wasn't at school to go anywhere, I, later I had a bicycle and it's small enough I could cover the whole place with a bicycle. School grounds were our playgrounds. We didn't have many city playgrounds. And the only rule I had was approaching dusk, uh, which was normally approaching uh, supper time, uh, de- dinner time, I had to be home. So that was about the only rule I had. Not bad. Sounds like a pretty good childhood for uh, for a future astronaut. You were inspired by none other than Buck Rogers. Well, I wasn't inspired to go in space. I just enjoyed that cereal. Uh, there was a sa- Saturday cereal at the Buck Theater in Biloxi that showed a cowboy uh, show and then only showed a Looney Tunes cartoon and uh, then had the cereal. And uh, one of them was Buck Rogers and his space adventures where he would run into trouble. And as I said in the book, he'd hop in his rocket and literally push one button and be off and away to escape. <laughs> and I later found that it wasn't as simple as pushing one button. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he never had to limp back home either in his uh, spaceship, I think. Um, I, I'm going to skip way forward. You you talked about your your early military experience, becoming a pilot, and uh, how sorry you were that you missed uh, the Korean War, that you weren't uh, able to, to fight along with uh, a lot of the other people that you worked with. Well, you know, you were, uh, we were trained. I uh, was in a fighter squadron and fighter attack. And uh, so you were trained uh, to execute missions that would deliver bombs or rockets or strafe or whatever. And I had all that training and never got to use it. And I felt even guilty more so during the Vietnam War when uh, many of my friends who were in the reserve unit where we got called in 61 uh, stayed on and ended up in Vietnam. And of course, uh, in, in combat, and I never really got to uh, uh, serve on, in combat where you might be shot at or shoot at somebody else. So I felt guilty. His friends uh, were there. In fact, they had one friend who was shot down twice up in North Korea, rescued twice, picked him up. That that's kind of the feeling I had that I, I missed out and uh, should have gone like my friends went. In my book, you you more than made up for it, but uh, I understand. How did landing on an aircraft carrier compare with uh, preparing to land on the moon? Well, uh, I didn't get to land on the moon, but I assume the commander's landing had high adrenaline flow because uh, they all had to take over manually and move uh, to find a decent place to put it down away from uh, either small craters or uh, rocks that were not visible from up high. Carrier was the same way. It required a lot of precision. You had to operate at a slow speed near the stall to come aboard. So it was really a, a precise setup to uh, get to the point where you cut the throttles and uh, slammed onto the deck. So I had the same way. You had a lot of adrenaline going as you were coming around the, to, on final to get, get set up and uh, execute that uh, landing. 
you know who's really especially going to love this book? Other pilots. Uh, uh, pilots like, hello? My computer screen just went blank. I don't know what happened there. I'm here. I'm still here. Yeah, I've never seen that happen before. But uh, uh, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, I'd say. Never panic early, right? <laughs> I don't know what happened there. And, and I've lost the waveform display on my machine. Uh. There's that hiccup I warned you about. And here's how we recovered from it. Fred Hayes, guy who made it through Apollo 13, we just had a technical difficulty here, but there you are. So that motto of yours, what is it again? Never panic early. (laughs) (laughs) How appropriate. Well, let me get back to the question that I was just about to ask you. I'd actually started to ask you. The group of people in my mind who are especially going to enjoy this book are pilots like like my uh, one of my dear brothers. I mean, were there any planes of that era that you didn't fly? I guess you have to classify uh, planes like different families. You know, you had uh, transports and uh, bombers, uh, the, bi- the big aircraft that were uh, handling qualities-wise, I call it, uh, how, they, how you flew them and, uh, when you had the stick in your hand. Uh, they tended to be heavier on the controls. Uh, they weren't as uh, maneuverable on purpose, actually, the way they were designed. Whereas fighters were uh, crisper, had uh, high, wanted to have high maneuverability, uh, tight turns, uh, high roll rates, and fairly low uh, stick forces, a uh, stick and rudder both, uh, again, by design. Uh, if I took the families, I, the favorite airplane, a fighter I flew, just because it was so natural, was the F-86 Sabrejet. It was before the era of all the computer and yeah. the software algorithms that are in most modern-day fighters, that, but virtually the bare airframe aircraft probably is unflyable, and the computer and the algorithms in there by the flight control designer have made it seem to fly well, uh, whereas probably <laughs> if the computers weren't there, you couldn't, you couldn't even fly it. It would be uncontrollable. But the 86, uh, without uh, much augmentation, uh, was just nice. Uh, you felt at home, and that aircraft almost immediately it trimmed well could do, you know, do things you wanted it to do to hold an attitude in the bank, uh, hold an airspeed or hold an altitude uh, was good. Uh, even some of the fighter type things of holding a, a gun sight or pipper on the target, uh, steady, th- those sort of things. It was a great, great fighter. Sounds like it was fun, actually, fun to fly. You either have the most amazing memory of anyone I've met or you've kept copies of all of your flight logs because the details that you provide throughout this book are so amazing. It's it's like reading a flight log in, in many cases. Well, I, I had a lot of background information. Uh, when, For instance, the, the part where I discussed being at Grumman uh, testing uh, lunar modules when they finished manufacturing and we were getting them ready to, to ship to the Kennedy to go launch. I actually kept a daily diary during that period for a year. And uh, also had we written memos, uh, Ed Mitchell, who later landed on the moon on Apollo 14, and I were doing that work. And Dave Ballard, a system engineer, we wrote regular memos to uh, Jim McDivitt, who was going to command the very first limb in, on Apollo 9 in lunar orbit. And we did formal memos to him monthly, roughly, to keep him advised on how his, how his limb was going, because that was our marching orders, to make sure I got a good limb to fly. Similarly, I wrote a lot of handwritten notes when I was in the program office working for the program director for the Orbiter uh, Space Shuttle for four years. 
And then during the approach and landing test, I wrote 31 crew notes, I called them. You know, I had that kind of information uh, to uh, rely, use and rely on to uh, write some of the uh, narrative. The details that, that, that you go into, I, I think, are one of the things that make this book so special. And it really is going to be a great fun for anybody who's a fan, not just of the Apollo program or who followed your mission, Apollo 13, but, but really across the board. I'm also thinking of all the great characters in the book because you knew so many of these great pilots and, and astronauts. We, we can't go through all of them, but just to, to, to provide a, a couple of examples, you spent a good deal of time with a guy that I met only once, Chuck Yeager, of course, the first uh, human being to uh, break the uh, sound barrier. Yeah, Chuck, uh, it happened that when I went to the Aerospace Research Pilot School called ARPS, or A-R-P-S, at Edwards Air Force Base, it turned out for a year, uh, Chuck was the commandant. He was head of, head of the school. I did get to fly with Chuck one time, I describe in the book. Uh, but, you know, I, said, Come on, I, didn't, I saw him almost every day, you know, just going down the hallways or something or passing by, seeing him in his office. But I didn't have, you know, a, a regular steady uh, work scope that was going on in school that Chuck was involved with. Uh, he was kind of the big boss. After his accident, he had an accident in the F-104 with a rocket motor attached where he uh, ended up in a spin and had to eject. In fact, I was flying that day, shooting uh, practice like X-15 approaches with a 104 to the Elliott Lake bed at Rogers. And I saw that flash of fire over to the west. And I called it out. I called crash, crash, crash to the Edwards Tower. At the time, I didn't realize that was the airplane that Chuck uh, had been in. And uh, later with my boss, Joe Walker, who uh, set altitude record in the X-15, uh, we visited Chuck in the hospital where he had been uh, burned uh, in his neck area from some of the hot coals that came out of the uh, ejection seat uh, motor and when he, after he ejected. Uh, you had your own experience with uh, some burns after uh, a mishap with an airplane years later. I just want to mention one other person. There, there are so many we could pick, but I'm thinking of Bruce McCandless. Uh, first person to do an untethered spacewalk, which you mentioned in the book, but you had an adventure with him in the jungles of Panama. Can you can you tell us about that? Yeah, Bruce. Uh, well, first of all, the, the way those uh, exercises were set up, be in the jungle or we had desert. Also, they organized you to be in a crew of three, just like we would in the capsule, as if you had uh, done an abort and landed in a desert or landed in the jungle and put you out there, just the three of you, and they put us in different areas uh, among our original 19 who were going through this exercise in Panama. And I inherited uh, Bruce and uh, the car for this uh, almost a week to live in the jungle. And Bruce, it turned out, was an avid, uh, really, I call him almost a professional bird watcher. And, of course, he loved things of nature of all sorts. And Bruce kept wandering off, uh, hunting for things. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately for him and for us, most of the food we might have captured lived in the overhead in the jungle. There was a thick blanket of overhead. <clears throat> we could hear things chirping up there. And so a lot of the animals really lived upstairs where we couldn't get at them. But he was out hunting and foraging to uh, what he might find uh, that would be of interest. And as it got near dark, well, of course, it got worried. <clears throat> would Bruce find his way back uh, because there were, there were no street signs <laughs> uh, but so we ended up just blowing a whistle. We had a whistle in our survival gear every uh, 10 minutes or so. 
and thought that sound would give uh, uh, Bruce a, a clue of direction to uh, get back home for the night. That's fascinating. And of course, you all made it back safely, thank goodness. I'm going to jump forward now to what everybody's been waiting for. What were you doing when you heard that uh, that loud bang on the way to the moon? Uh, at the time I was in the lunar module, we had just completed a TV show that was scheduled. And uh, we had pulled out uh, some of the things in storage to talk about. It was kind of like a show and tell. I was busily trying to put stuff back away that I had pulled out when this bang happened. Uh, Jim was, I think, just transposing back to the command module and when this happened through the tunnel. Uh, so Jack was alone in the command module and made and the only one on communication at the time. And he made the first call at Houston. We've had a problem here. Uh, Jim uh, got back up and they had not answered. And I think it was because the high gain antenna got hit when that panel went off and it broke communication for a little bit. And Jim repeated the call. Uh, very quickly, I uh, left the limb and floated back back up to my right couch position to, again to survey uh, what was going on. And you knew something was seriously wrong. I mean, you didn't, I guess it, you didn't really realize how bad it was at first, but things went downhill pretty quickly, right? Right. Uh, we knew the bang obviously was abnormal. Vehicle actually uh, shook uh, uh, quite a bit with the vibration and started trying to move from the thrust that had been imparted from the panel of a quarter of the spacecraft blowing off the service module. And the thrusters, the 100-pound thrusters were firing to hold attitude. Uh, when I got to the panel, I was con it was confusing looking at the caution warning lights. There were about six or seven on. Very quickly surveying uh, what was in front of me in the right couch was the cryogenics, fuel cells, uh, some of the environmental system, and all the power for the systems. It was apparent from the readings on several meters that we had lost oxygen tank two. Now that in itself was not life-threatening because tank one looked intact. As it turned out, there somehow, and we never really knew it did develop this very slowly and was what would eventually go down and lose all its oxygen too, but we didn't know it. So it was not life-threatening, but I was just sick to my stomach with disappointment because I knew immediately a loss of one of the two tanks, men and abort, and we would not even go in the lunar orbit, much less land. So I'd yeah. done a lot of training through two previous missions to get go to fly and didn't. And here was my big chance, and it went away in an instant. You'd prepared for so many things in that extensive training, years of training that you and the other Apollo astronauts got. But the really, this was something special, right? I mean, this led to all that amazing, ingenious improvisation that, uh, thank God, was able to get you guys home. Right. The uh, uh, failures were uh, obviously considered throughout the uh, design phase. Uh, reliability engineering uh, kind of headed it with uh, written uh, reports called failure mean effects analysis on uh, all the failures you can consider happening, valves open, failed open, failed close, or short electric shorts. And explosions were considered, primarily thinking about rocket engines, which are obviously have a high opportunity maybe to do that. 
And the manifestation, always they wrote, of the failure and early in the design, that's often changed the design or added redundancy or added instrumentation to the, the vehicle. Uh, but in the case of explosions, the answer was you're going to lose the vehicle and you're going to lose the crew. So that was the answer. So here we had an explosion that gave mission control and people on the ground a big problem because they didn't lose the crew. We were, we were still there breathing and uh, had the unusual situation of losing the mothership, the command and service module, because when the oxygen ran out of tank one, obviously we had to shut it down. Jack Swigert actually did that. We left him to power up the limb and uh, to preserve the three small entry batteries that were to get you through entry. So uh, this, this was obviously nothing we had ever planned for in uh, any of the simulations uh, that we had done uh, for this particular failure. We got to remind people that nobody knew how badly the service module was damaged until you were nearly back at Earth and were able to separate back off from it. And you saw that, that panel blown to smithereens, basically. I mean, how did that feel at that moment when you, you saw just how bad it was? It was a shock, really, to see that much uh, damage or the one, literally one quarter, uh, the large panel, uh, one quarter of the spacecraft, the service module had come off. And we could see uh, within what the area left charred, uh, torn thermal blankets, uh, some cables loose. It was obvious that it hit the high gain antenna. And it even looked like there was a uh, sort of a discoloration on the uh, SPS engine bell. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. as it swung, the panel swung to the uh, around as it peeled off and maybe hit that even. That was the main engine. That's the main engine on the uh, service module, yeah. So it was, uh, it was really surprising that we hadn't even felt more dynamics uh, at the time with what we saw. You know, you say in the book that, that something over 25 years after the accident, you listened again to the recording of your communications with Mission Control and that you could hear a change in the tone from your astronaut colleagues, the, the capsule communicators. I don't know if you noticed it at the time while you were on board, the, while you were still in the middle of the mission, but uh, they must have been pretty worried about you guys. Yeah, actually, what I, what I listened to uh, years later was the inter, inner loops. The astronaut, uh, Capcom, is on a, the air-to-ground loop. But, but within uh, Mission Control, there is a support room off to the side, even outside of Mission Control, with the supporting experts for the various uh, 28 people in Mission Control. And that loop is private. It does never go public. So I uh, managed to get those and listen to uh, the chatting back and forth with the various disciplines when they were trying to shut the vehicle down because the mothership was never supposed to be shut down. So there was no procedure on how to shut it down. So they had to kind of ad lib uh, that part of it. And I was, it was uh, remarkable to me that they were sort of professionally arguing back and forth on what steps to take and what order. They didn't want to damage anything that was in their minds because they, they, they were already thinking we're going to get this thing powered back up later i didn't know quite yet when that was going to be but we do, we want to preserve its integrity so we can do that so they had not given up the ship although when they got to a point in the troubleshooting earlier the first hour really we, they were troubleshooting 
uh, and having us do different things on board to try to stop the leak in tank one. Uh, when they had run out of ideas on that was when I saw, I heard the different uh, change in some of the voices discussing at that point, they knew they had run out of ideas and were, I guess, deflated uh, because they knew they had lost the battle to stop the leak and they were going to have to shut down the command module. I wonder if it wasn't a little bit of a blessing that this happened on the way to the moon so that you and Mission Control had days to figure things out rather than on the way back when you wouldn't have maybe wouldn't have had that opportunity. Of course, at least you would have walked on the moon by then if all had gone well. So there's a downside, too. But it, it really seems like it was they needed that time to make sure you were going to be able to get back. Well, mainly we needed a limb. Uh, yeah. If, if we had landed on the moon, first of all, and, and rendezvoused and that happened, uh, we could have not gotten out of the lunar orbit with just the yeah, uh, little ascent engine and what fuel was left. And of course, the little acid engine couldn't have maybe made covered the time, even if the SPS engine somehow we got out of the lunar orbit. If we were out of the lunar orbit, then uh, the ascent stage that was left may have been not sufficient for the time remaining to get back to entry. It was that dear lunar module that was able to get you home. I'm, one of my favorite photos in the book, maybe is unexpected, uh, certainly was unexpected for me. It was a card with a bunch of your hand-printed arithmetic. Uh, what were you up to? Well, after the very first maneuver we did, uh, which Jim executed using the descent engine, wasn't a very long burn, was to get us back on that path to loop around the moon, to get us sort of now we're in nice coasting flight and at least had a path to way home. Jim asked me to compute consumables, electri- how much electric power, how much water that would get us home. Because we knew it for, at that time it was going to be a much longer longer mission than we ended up with, because of the later maneuver we did it cut some time off. And I did not compute oxygen because we had lots of oxygen. Mm. Uh, we had uh, two full backpacks uh, we were going to use on EVAs, an emergency bottle on each. That was probably a one day supply in themselves. So, but the water and uh, power for the six uh, batteries in the limb. I uh, computed the water for mo- more for cooling equipment with the hot the cold plates under electronics and not for drinking for particularly. And I had us uh, making it uh, barely uh, with power and I ran out of water based on curves I had of the water usage for a given amperage level, power level. But at any rate, this little card you're talking about was actually a different or a different purpose. It was what we call a burn card or a maneuver card where you log the stuff you're going to do for next uh, use of the engine through the computer. And uh, at the bottom, it had a blank area that I used to do all this hand scratching uh, with plain old grocery store arithmetic. I used that card, incidentally, if I can use it to do a PowerPoint when I talk to children in school to uh, make them aware of that arithmetic does really come in handy sometimes. It's plain old arithmetic, and that's because we didn't have a calculator on board, so I did all this by, uh, by hand. I love that, that, uh, that that's uh, being used as a little demonstration for, uh, for kids or has been ever since. I have always been fascinated by the solutions that you and the people on the ground came up with 
you know, using whatever was available, cellophane, a pair of socks, that was new to me, a duct tape, of course, all of this stuff that came together through a lot of ingenious, I mean, really genius activity. I mean, I, I bet you won't disagree. No, I, that, was, that was kind of one of the, the things I uh, complained about when I got to talk about Ron, to Ron Howard after they had the private showing was that he had not showed uh, a big enough cast. Uh, and, and a few people I had in mind particularly that played big roles were not in the movie. And of course, he explained quickly that uh, if you have only two hours or a little over, you can only develop so many characters. So you have to pick and choose who would make, make the best uh, character on uh, media. And uh, because there was a larger group, even phone consulting, probably back to the manufacturers that actually designed and built the vehicles uh, and the beyond, beyond mission control. And mission control itself had four teams on each mission. So there were four flight directors supporting every mission. They picked Gene Kranz's white team as the preferred one to show in the movie. Mm. So there were NASA engineers, uh, and they had a separate room in a different building from Mission Control right next door, building 45, where there was the MUR, the Mission Evaluation Room, where there's a host of uh, program office, uh, some program office people as well as engineers that, as I said, could communicate back to those prime contractors who uh, had built the vehicles and also communicated with sub subcontractors who had some of the key systems knowledge uh, they needed. The Murr was an interesting place. There was a double doors going in, and they had a sign over the door that said, God is welcome. All others bring data. <laughs> That's terrific. You know, you, you made me think of uh, some other people who helped out who weren't anywhere near Mission Control. We have a lot of listeners in Canada. Could you, could you say something about what happened? Uh, the people at the University of Toronto who also helped to get you home. Right. The one one problem uh, to address was separating the lunar module as we got close to entry, actually. And the normal way you would do that, you would uh, release the latches and use the small 100-pound thrusters on the service module, which was the one that blew up, and use those thrusters to back away to make get clearance. Well, of course, the service module we'd already separated at the time. So we just had the upper half of the limb left. And uh, so we couldn't use that normal method. And an alternate scheme was to pressurize the tunnel in the tunnel area between the hatches of the two vehicles. And then to explosively uh, separate the, in the tunnel to separate the vehicles and let that extra pressure kind of give the push to the lunar module for separation. And the concern was uh, what pressure to use to not cause a leak in one of the hatches. Obviously, not not the hatch we were in in the command module. No. <laughs> without, without being suited. And uh, one of the Grumman people in research you know, heard about the problem, and he called his friends, his colleagues at the University of Toronto, who were shock dynamic experts uh, that could tackle that kind of problem and, and got the information to them. They, in turn, called a colleague of theirs at the University of California, who similarly was a shock dynamics type uh, discipline. And he they, they both went to work, and neither, neither had obviously ever been involved in the space program, per se, particularly not Apollo. And they voluntarily uh, produced data 
and I met with the group. One had passed away years later. Uh, one was on travel, but I met with four of the six that had worked on it at the University of Toronto. And they showed me the curves, the data they still had of their analysis at a dinner I had with the people. And that was the way it was. I mean, there was probably some more stories that I've never uncovered of people even outside the program that volunteered knowledge or help uh, consulting in some way to provide data. Uh, NASA, of course, had done their own analysis, and I'm not sure which of the three, uh, how, how they were used uh, to give us what pressure to use in the tunnel. Here's a line from the chapter that tells this story. It was clear that they, Mission Control, and all of these other people back on the ground had not given up on getting us back to Earth. Did you ever doubt it? Well, yes, I doubt it, and I'm sure they doubted it. You know, you work, you work as hard as you can to work problems at hand that are, op- op- call it open items, to come to some conclusion and develop the procedures but there was no assurance along the way for solving these things. Uh, but uh, I think the spirit was there that we were, we were going to solve them no matter what. And, of course, uh, they lost a lot of sleep. Many people on the ground, I think, got less than I got in flight trying to struggle to get these, these things worked out and tested. In some cases, actually did uh, live testing like the lithium cartridge fix. Uh, there was a chamber in building... Uh, nine or building seven rather at johnson that had a chamber with a limb environmental system and they actually uh, put the cartridge fix in there and impregnated it with uh, abundance of co2 and uh, ran it to make sure that it would it would get rid of the co2 so things were done that way before we ever got the procedures to uh, implement Right on this point, you know, your your computer, your other electronics that you had available to you, even though they were the best available back then, they were crazy primitive to uh, compared to what we have now. I mean, you know, my little watch uh, has a lot more power than your computer. You say something very interesting, though, about this. And here's that sentence from the book. Even with all of the increased computing memory and the advent of artificial intelligence over the years since... I think only a human mind could have come up with some of the ideas that got us home. Well, sir, yeah, certainly it was. It was ad-libbing, as you said earlier, to, to make use of what was known to be on board. And it's actually, it was uh, available, uh, listing uh, by compartment on board, what was there to, to be available to use. Although even beyond that, like the create the mailbox for the lithium hydroxide removal, uh, they actually used backs of checklists to form a stiff plenum chamber to hook up to the intake hose of the limb to uh, be able to do that extraction. So they went beyond what we call it normal storage was in the vehicle. So it all worked, thank God. You come back to this tremendous celebration. The whole world was celebrating Sadly, you weren't in great shape. You were you were kind of under the weather. Could you describe what happened? Well, I, I developed a, a urinary tract. In spite of all the effort we do with white suits and trying to keep the vehicles clean through all the testing and getting it ready for launch, they're still open air. They're exposed to air. And, of course, right now where we're sitting, there's probably some germs sitting floating around. And, of course, there were some in the, in the capsule. 
And uh, they got into my urinary tract and I developed this uh, UTI, a urinary tract infection, and had chills and fever for about a day and a half uh, on the way back in. Sorry you had to spend that time miserable when everybody else was uh, was celebrating. I imagine you were, still had room to, to have some relief and, and feel pretty happy about how things happened. Oh, ab- absolutely. Although it's still in the back of my mind, I was m- most happy about the way... Uh, when I saw some of the media reports after Splashdown, how it had been received, because, you know, these missions cost considerable money. And this was NASA's first, in our minds, at least at the time, failure. Uh, we had not accomplished what we planned to do, the land on the moon at this Farmaro area. And we worried there might be a very negative connotation to that, the general public and even to a point of maybe causing the demise in the program in some way. So I was elated to see that it was not looked that way. It was looked at what it was, uh, a, a great uh, people people in problem and a great challenge overcome by a team uh, that worked uh, diligently to uh, have a successful ending, at least what counted, to a splashdown and our survival. Anyone you can walk away from, right? Right, exactly. I was just a kid still for Apollo 13, but I was one of those who was never left the television or except to go to school, I guess. I was jumping for joy when, uh, when you guys uh, splashed down that day. Fred Hayes has many more stories to share when we return in less than a minute. Greetings all, Bill Nye here. Missions of discovery are underway right now thanks to the Planetary Society, the world's largest independent space advocacy organization. And now is the time to join our space advocacy network to keep NASA's planetary science going strong. Help us fight for missions that matter. First, visit planetary.org slash take action to make your donations. Right now, your gift will be doubled thanks to a generous member. U.S. residents can also sign the petition asking your representatives to support space science and exploration. With your backing, we'll keep advocating for space. Please go to planetary.org slash take action today. Thank you. I'm going to go forward, though, now a few years to the approach and landing tests of the space shuttle. And that, that very first test article, the one given the name Enterprise, and I'm thinking of that, that first captive flight when Enterprise stayed on the back of the 747, followed by the first free flight when it was released above Edwards, what had become Edwards Air Force Base, formerly Rogers. I was there. I was standing on the lake bed, All crazy right. close to where you guys took off and landed. We reporters... We're so close and so focused on you guys. We didn't notice the T-38 chase plane that flew right over our heads, knocked us down into the dirt. But man, that was one of the greatest days of my life when we saw you coming back, floating back down to the dry lake bed. Let me tell you, it was a great experience. It was a great day for me uh, as well. Uh, I had worked in a different way, for four years, I went into what you want to call it pseudo-program management. I left the astronaut office and went to the orbiter project office uh, and worked, as I said, four years during that design development of shuttle. Most of, most of the time, obviously, on Enterprise and Columbia through the uh, preliminary design review in Columbia and through the critical design review on Enterprise. And then it was obviously a great to be chosen as one of the two crews to uh, fly the vehicle through its the test flights, which frankly was really back to uh, 
my love before uh, with NASA as a test pilot. Uh, it was an aircraft test program, really, and uh, proved the uh, combination of aerodynamic, the aerodynamic qualities of the vehicle. But probably the biggest challenge we had was getting the four computers to work in unison. It was a new system that involved four computers voting each other. Uh, and we had uh, we almost gave up on it. In fact, at a point, we said, we're not going to make schedule flying and maybe go to single string, go to one single string primary, one single string backup system. But finally, uh, one of the IBM later releases, uh, I think I wrote in the book, B-23, was the one that all at once stabilized, and we never had problems thereafter keeping the computers together. But that was a, a big, big challenge, uh, just getting that part of the system running right. Flying that orbiter back down to the lake bed, that had to be about as different as could be from flying an F-86 fighter. The, not the handling qualities. So it was no. It was kind of like a medium uh, airliner in terms of its uh, yeah. the crispness of the controls, and it uh, it handled. Uh, it was tighter uh, in terms of handling qualities and handling qualities quality than we'd seen in any of the simulations. So it flew very well. Uh, as a glider, it was the equivalent with initially with the tail cone on, uh, it was pretty good glider, much better than say the F-86 or the later tail cone off uh, orbiter. So we, uh, in fact, first flight was over five minutes uh, long on that glide down to the uh, lake bed. So and handling qualities near the ground uh, and, and the one bugaboo you worried about is ground effect. Uh, as you get near the ground, whether it's suck you into the ground for a harder than landing planned or a balloon you, which in our case is bad because no engines to uh, to preserve speed that's bleeding off or even go do a go around. Uh, so it, it, that turned out to be just about perfect, a nice cushioning, and you could almost let go of the controls and it would land. Uh, so it was a beautiful flying machine, as it turned out. Were you ever sorry that they didn't? keep that concept from the early designs for the shuttle orbiter that added a couple of uh, turbojets that would have allowed you to have more control and maybe, I guess, even to come back around and give it a second try? Right. We, that, that was there in the uh, design initially. We also had abort rockets. You could go off to pay it. That huh. were also uh, deleted. But wait, we could not afford to wait. But we also found out through the later studies and the simulations, we had a footprint good enough coming out of the blackout that we would always be able to be within glide distance of the field. That was one of the concerns that would come out of blackout where we didn't have navigation. And the first time we'd get it, we'd find we're too far away from a field to get to, to land. And that the jet engines, of course, would be a help there to get you where you could make the approach and landing. But we got confidence in the navigation we had on board that that would not be required. And of course, they were a weight penalty, serious weight penalty to have the jet engines. When I was back at uh, Edwards for the first landing of Columbia, one of the greatest things I ever saw, and it's a photo that's uh, hanging on the wall in my office, is uh, Shuttle Enterprise, that test article that you flew, surrounded by people, just regular citizens, the people who paid for it. Because of that, it's just a treasure to me. I think it, it represents how the American public and others embrace that program and to a large degree still embrace uh, space travel, space exploration. No, it was a, a versatile vehicle that we really, uh, 
we don't have that capability and anything we have today to not just carry things up and launch them, but to retrieve uh, satellites who have done that, or as we've gone, we've gone back up a couple of times to uh, repair a space telescope and make it do the wondrous things and sightings it's done, as well as upgrade it. Uh, the second flight went up and replaced some of the uh, avionics to make it even better. So we don't have anything that quite that yet to uh, look on the horizons, at least reality, that can do those kind of missions. Pretty spectacular uh, spacecraft. Um, you know, I'm only sorry that our time is limited because I could spend another half hour talking to you about your experiences with the shuttle and uh, probably another hour with Apollo 13. But I got a few other questions I want to try and get to. You left NASA after 20 years. You realized it'd be several more years before you'd have a chance to fly a shuttle orbiter and uh, went to Grumman. It was before it became Northrop Grumman, of course. And they kept you real busy as a, as a vice president, didn't they? Yeah, I spent four years at New York where Grumman Corporate was, uh, run, as you say, running space programs. Some of it was kind of new to me. I, uh, I'm, I was always involved in uh, programs that already existed or even operations of things. And a, a big part of my job was new business. And that's, that's a practice uh, where companies do studies, uh, some on their own, but some uh, coupled with uh, minor, minor contracts with the customer to really, if you want to call do the, the groundwork to invent the program and make it happen, which also includes, as you get a little further into it, some lobbying uh, with Congress to help NASA through their budget cycles uh, to make that program become a reality where you now get to uh, actually do the finished design and build it. One of the things, for instance, we uh, uh, sold for the shuttle was the manipulator foot restraint. This is the thing on the end of the RMS arm that you see astronauts perched on to do uh, work on satellites, that kind of thing. Actually had a simulator. Several astronauts, came, we had come to Grumman and try it out where we could replicate the dynamics on the arm for what work they were doing. So they could see how much jiggling or the dynamics that would, they would incur as they're using tools to do some task while perched on this simulator. We did studies, though, for things like uh, I mentioned one that was uh, would, would someday maybe happen, but be very dramatic and, a, and a, a good for the green folks uh, was a solar power satellite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where you had launched, uh, and, and if it, of course, the big drawback was to have the boost capability, but to build this large array of solar power, uh, the one we're looking at uh, at the time in the study was like the uh, size of Manhattan. Wow. That would be a geosynchronous orbit and be providing, you know, 24 hours a day uh, solar power beamed down by a microwave or infrared to a station in the ocean and then cabled back to land. Uh, of course, that's a lot of mass to put up there. And uh, it would take, uh, again, a, a cheap boost capability to, uh, to even begin to make it economical. But of course, once in place, you had a lot of free power. We actually looked at the study, it was interesting. Rather than pre-build the beam structure, the solar cells would be mounted on for that size object the system trade was you would build it up there. In mm -hmm. other words, you'd mm -hmm. build a beam-making machine that would go up and, br and bring raw material up. And so you'd build build the whole thing uh, on orbit. Who knows if that'll ever ever come to pass, for real. 
I, I think there have been some almost attempts at that just in a, on, a, on a test basis up on the International Space Station. And who knows, maybe we will still see a solar power station uh, someday, especially as uh, as it costs less and less to get a pound or a kilogram up uh, up there above the Earth. You were also there, weren't you, in the early troubled days of what was then known as Space Station Freedom? I mean, am I right to call them troubled? Well, the trouble was financial. Oh. I four years I uh, was ran the system engineering integration contract for Grumman on the ISS, not the ISS, but Space Station Freedom. It was known at, uh, as at that time, and we every year it was a fight for NASA, which we supported in any way we could to get through the congressional committees and through the budget cycle to uh, keep keep us going. Uh, we never could make the breakthrough during my time there to get the, the step up in funding. Uh, you, you can play with the uh, design, and we restructured the vehicle on paper a, a couple of times during my period to try to take things out to make it, quote, cheaper. But to actually make the, the bigger step from what we call phase B to phase C, where you really think about building it, takes a, it takes a, a peak up in the funding. And we kind of never could get traction to to make that step. So we did a lot of paper studies uh, and and not studies, but changes in the design during that period of the four years. And it wasn't until uh, the Russians joined the program later that uh, the funding was pretty much by the program plan to get it built. It was tough because of the uh, morale with that very publicized problem in the newspapers that our workers could uh, see, and I was doing doing a lot of work, uh, mainly as a morale officer in my spare time, <laughs> try to retain the engineers I had uh, acquired in, in nationwide recruiting uh, to build up the, the engineers I had in Washington to have them stay on a job because they they had them worried about is the program going to survive one year if one vote had changed in the House of Representatives there would be no space station today things like that that were highly publicized in the Washington Post and most of the other periodicals that where I had people at integration offices at uh, four NASA centers, same way as smaller workforce, but people I had people there that support the integration. And they felt the same way as this, this program really going to last. But it worked. Do you ever go outside now and, and wait and watch that little point of light pass overhead I hope that you take some pride in knowing that that you and your team laid the groundwork for that space station where people have now been living for well over 20 years. Yes, I, I am uh, proud and uh, I'm uh, amazed in some ways that we managed to uh, get the interface uh, documents for how this thing all came together correct from a standpoint of just not just a mechanical mating of all the parts, but all the throughput of uh, data lines, plumbing, cooling air, that, that sort of stuff that all meshed and uh, fit together. I worried, One thing I really worried about that you'd get the next part up, next module, and it wouldn't fit. Uh, and the shuttle, <laughs> sure. the shuttle couldn't hang around very long to make that happen. So I was happy that that was accomplished, which is a big, was a big part and concern and challenge to make sure that never, uh, never happened. Definitely getting us ready to go back to the moon and, and on to Mars someday. I, I got just a couple of other questions, but there's one little sidelight I have to mention, because I think it was during this period in your, your corporate career 
when you gave a tour to a certain science fiction author, a guy who was on this show many times before we lost him, uh, the great uh, Ray Bradbury, and and how did you interact with him? Ray was uh, gracefully replied to my request for him to be a chief speaker at the large banquet affair we had uh, for an annual event called the Space Congress in Cocoa Beach. It was a three-day event, and I happened to be that year the chairman. Got, got it all ready to go, and I needed various events. I needed speakers, and I thought of Ray as a great guy for the uh, banquet event. As an aside from that, I got to take him, and I wanted to, to take him on a tour of the real the real space stuff out at Kennedy Space Center, which was shuttle. And so I took him through the processing facilities, particularly the OPF, which is the hangar that shuttle was being reworked in, and, of course, the launch pad. And uh, there was a vehicle under underway getting ready for the next launch in the OPF. And he went in, and, of course, uh, if you've seen uh, flown orbiters, they show some of the battle-weary uh, signs on the uh, fuselage of their last flight. It's a real spacecraft. He got underneath and looked up and scanned this vehicle, and actually tears came to his eyes because he had written, of course, about even more marvelous vehicles that went to Mars or wherever, but this is the first time he had really seen a real, real spacecraft that one that had flown in space. And of course, it would just, to him, I guess, this was a, a big, big day. I know the feeling. Tomorrow, as we speak, I'm going to be back underneath Shuttle Endeavor, that orbiter, for Yuri's Night at the California Science Center. It will already have happened by the time people hear this. Every time I walk into that room and just overhead, out of reach, you can see those, those burned tiles on the bottom of that craft that carried humans into orbit uh, above our Earth, it, it is almost overwhelming. I mean, it, it brings tears to my eyes as well. My colleagues at the Planetary Society are going to be very pleased to learn that you end the book with your concern for defending our planet from asteroids. It's something we talk about a lot on this show, including with your old friend and uh, fellow Apollo astronaut Rusty Schweikert. I guess I, I need to thank you for that. Rusty obviously worked on that theme a lot longer than, uh, than my, my thoughts about it. It's one of these things that's uh, real, but it's uh, kind of like I ask people in general, and of course, uh, U.S. government and the governments in general say, well, it's probably not going to happen on my watch. Uh, right. It'll be beyond my time, and you know, I'm not going to do anything serious to worry about it. But I think we've gotten to know things better, including our visits. And I'm amazed at uh, the missions that have been flown with some very lengthy rendezvous uh, years, in fact, to get to a comet or a, a larger meteorite and shoot pictures of it or even we landed a couple. Got, I guess we got one that's coming back with samples. Very soon. Okay, but that's uh, just amazing that we've got that knowledge base. And we have, uh, I guess, near it is... Uh, mission on the way that's going to go up and nudge a small satellite around the bigger asteroid yes to look at the physics and the dynamics of that nudge to better appreciate how we might attack it when we have to if we have to for a much bigger one where we would send something up to do a similar thing to make it avoid hitting earth 
scary thing is those antelopers. We've had lately uh, had an antelope come through that is from somewhere else, and we don't even know where it came from. And I guess some of the alien folks uh, thinkers uh, thought it may have been an alien uh, passing through our solar system. Yeah. But those things are, are bad because we may not get much uh, time to know they're coming. Most of the larger ones, at least, meteoroids, asteroids, we track. We understand that and know when we might be threatened, could know when we might be threatened. But these antelopers, we may not get much warning that they're uh, heading in to our solar system. So it would be nice to have a capability of, and to me, it's an international problem to worry about, not just the U.S., to think of having a, not just one uh, capability for defense, but you need to have several because the first one you send may not may be a failure. And so you'd like to have a backup, uh, at least, to uh, make a second attempt at these things. We have had some smaller ones uh, have near misses, even lately. We sure have. Thank you for that. Um, I got just one more question for you. Forgive me if I am off base here. When I was talking to you about that tour you gave to Ray Bradbury and and my own reaction when I walk up to the space shuttle Endeavor and stand beneath it, you took off your glasses, you wiped your eyes a little bit. I don't know, maybe it's just allergies, but I wonder if you were feeling what I did. Because you say in the book that you were usually a a no-nonsense, just-the-facts kind of guy, and yet there was one view from Odyssey your command module, that really took your breath away. I'm guessing it was one of those emotional moments. Well, I say, a uh, matter of fact, to me, to me, the mission I flew uh, uh, in space was just an extension of my airplane experience. You know, you needed a altimeter that read a little higher, and uh, <laughs> you had some different systems in it for life support, and use rocket engines versus uh, air-powered jet engines, but to me, it was just another piece of machinery that was meant to go a little further. Uh, so I didn't see anything mystical particularly about it. Uh, or some people had a religious connotation from uh, their missions. I did not feel that. But what about that view of Earth? Well, the, the, the views were all uh, incredible. I mean, even from Earth orbit, of course, highest I'd been in an airplane was approaching uh, 90,000 feet on 104 Zoom flights going around in orbit and looking at the large land masses and the water and features uh, from even a hundred miles we were at for a couple of revolutions, but particularly looking at the earth uh, shrinking as you went away to a small ball. And of course, the uh, contrasting view as you, uh, we briefly looped around the moon, including a good view of the backside. We were at about 130 miles, a little over. Uh, versus the 60 most people were in orbit at so looking so contrastingly so different from our uh, beautiful earth uh yeah those were all uh i'll call it certainly unusual uh and uh, impressive things to be looking at fred hayes thank you very much um i just wonder is there anything else that you would want to add for the audience to hear that we may not have gotten to no i i don't think so uh but just at the end of the book, I really talked to three challenges. Hope people will look, uh, read and think about. They, uh, they're all things that uh, for future generations need to consider and hopefully uh, do some uh, proactive rather than reactive uh, responses to. 
That book that he's talking about is Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 astronaut's journey from Smithsonian Books. And uh, you had assistance in writing this from Bill Moore, who has uh, also been heard on this program, great aerospace uh, historian and, and writer. Uh, uh, do you want to say anything nice about Bill? Yeah, Bill, I, I actually met, uh, I think it was 20, probably 22 years ago, because I have a picture of him and my granddaughter, Dakota, who at the time was probably five years old. She's 20, going to 28. Quite a while ago, I was at an event where I was inducted into the Oklahoma uh, Aviation Hall of Fame. And I met Bill then, and we were we're, we're co-graduates of the University of Oklahoma. So we've kept uh, in touch over the years at various for various other events because he's been involved in uh, uh, several museums. He's on boards of directors of a couple right now. And I've been involved 15 years on the board of Infinity Science Center and worked uh, from day one to help it raise the money to get it built. Uh, it did not exist. We had to build it and then uh, raise money for exhibits where it's fully operational museum in Mississippi, close to uh, where I grew up and close to uh, Stennis Space Center. Infinity Science Center, one of the many, many topics we simply don't have time to discuss in this conversation, but they are in the book, uh, Never Panic Early. Again, Fred Hayes, thank you so much for the book, for spending time with us, but most especially for your many, many decades of, uh, of service. All right, and I'm glad we survived that one panic early event. <laughs> <laughs> we did indeed. Houston, you can stand down. <laughs> okay. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Welcome back, everybody, and welcome to you, Bruce Betts, Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. I am uh, glad you're here. I, I just want to say up front, because I'm not going to get to write to everybody, but thank you to all of you who sent me uh, birthday wishes uh, last week, because yes, indeed, it was my birthday. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you. I had a nice time. Happy birthday, Matt. You know, to celebrate, I, uh, I was able to buy just a whole bunch of new cool video games. You're going to give those to me? Let's say for your birthday, I bought a bunch of stuff for me. That's interesting because we got this message from Ben Owens in Australia. He was one of my well-wishers. He said, he sent my gift of $1,000 to you, Bruce, so you could give it to me at my surprise party. Uh, <laughs> Shall we just I go never, on? Surprise! I think you should tell us what's up in the night sky. The, the pre-dawn planet party has gotten so cool. It really uh, is worth checking out. Jupiter joining Venus. So the brightest planet in the sky, brightest natural object in the night sky besides the moon is Venus. And the second brightest is Jupiter. Jupiter's coming up and joining Venus over the next couple weeks and uh, will be low in the eastern sky in the pre-dawn. Jupiter and Venus both extremely bright. Venus much brighter. They will be closer than the width of a full moon on April 30th. But it doesn't stop there. There's this whole lineup going from the horizon to the upper right of Jupiter, Venus, reddish Mars, and yellowish Saturn, both of which are much dimmer than the other two. So check that out. April 30th, partial solar eclipse. If you're in the right place, if you happen to be in the southeastern Pacific Ocean or southern South America, April 30th, partial solar eclipse. On to this week in space history. 
It was 1972 that Apollo 16 was launched, taking humans successfully to and from the moon once again. In 1981, the landing of the first ever shuttle mission to space, STS-1, landed this week in 1981. And I was there. As I mentioned to Fred Hayes just a few minutes ago, I was standing uh, just off the dry lake bed uh, covering that. And boy, what a what a wonderful celebration that was. And I enjoyed that you just dropped the name Fred Hayes. All right, let us move on to Random Space Vent. Wow, operatic. Yeah. Features. I love naming of features in the solar system for some odd reason. Features on the binary asteroid system Didymos and Dimorphos, which you may be familiar with or you certainly will be in a few months, will be named after percussion musical instruments. Ah. We'll get our first close-up look at the system shortly before the DART mission impacts Dimorphos this fall as the first test of asteroid deflection. And when those features are seen, they'll be named after percussion musical instruments. I can only guess because it's one thing hitting another. That makes sense now that you mention it. All right, we go on to the trivia contest and we played planetary radio math games once again. I ask you, what is mission numbers of the following added together? So the mission numbers added together, the first Apollo to orbit the moon plus the only space shuttle to land at White Sands, New Mexico, plus the first Mars orbiter. How'd we do, Matt? Here's the answer from uh, our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Apollo 8 was pretty great. It orbited the moon. Then shuttle STS-3 came down at White Sands Dunes. The Mariner was number nine. It circled Mars around, and adding them gives 20 because it's math the whole way down. <laughs> <laughs> That is correct, because it's our 20th year, Matt. Oh, I see what you're getting at there. This is the 20th year of planetary radio. Yes, you're right. We did have several people who said that the first Mars orbiter was the Soviet Union's Mars 2. It was not, even though it launched first. Here's what part of the response we got from Kent Murley in Washington. Mariner 9 launched from Cape Canaveral 11 days and uh, two days after the Soviets launched two heavier orbiters that included Mars landers. Less mass helped Mariner 9 enter Mars orbit sooner. But I looked it up. It was only a couple of weeks before Mars 2 from the Soviet Union arrived. So uh, sorry, folks. But uh, yeah, most of you did get it right, knew that it was Mariner 9 that got there first. Uh, one of those, I think, was Isaac Mitchell in New York, who is 11 and loves space. And uh, Isaac, we're glad of that. I'm sorry to say, though, Isaac, random.org did not make you the winner this time, but keep at it, Isaac. Here's our winner. It's Al Jansen, another first-time winner. He's in Minnesota. He says he loves the show, and uh, he has won himself that 20 by 36-inch Mars Science screen poster from Chop Shop, featuring Curiosity, Perseverance, and that cute little whirlybird Ingenuity on the Red Planet. And uh, those, of course, from ChopShopStore.com, where the Planetary Society has all of its merchandise in our own little sub-store there as well. Uh, congratulations, Al. Congratulations. And we are ready to get a new quiz from you. It's time once again to play Where in the Solar System? Boy, oh boy, oh boy. And here's my birthday present to you, Matt. 
Where in the solar system is there a mountain named Kaplan? So give me the object, the planet, moon, whatever it is. Give me the object on which there is a mountain named Kaplan. Go to planetary in our solar system. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest to get your entry in by. Well, first of all, why did I not know this? Second, you need to get that to us (laughs) (laughs) by Wednesday. That'd be Wednesday, April 20th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Why did you not know the answer, or why did you not know I was going to ask the question? (laughs) Well, both, but why did I not know that there's a mountain that somebody very kindly, clearly named after yours uh, yours truly? Uh, That's not (laughs) part of the question, just to be clear. Here's your prize, if you make it through this one, past uh, random.org. It is the book that we were talking to Fred Hayes about, his brand new book, Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 astronaut's journey that he wrote with the great Bill Moore. And uh, it is from Smithsonian Books. It can be yours. Enjoy. Uh, We did get one question, Bruce, uh, about prizes or a suggestion from John Ferguson in Illinois, who said, rubber asteroids are great, and we will give away some more before too long. But when are you going to offer a light sail kite? Well, (laughs) I think never. uh, But there was one light sail kite that was built by... uh, staff of the Planetary Society and flown successfully. It hangs in an office at uh, TPS headquarters, so I don't think so. We also have a quarter-scale model of light sail in the Smithsonian Futures exhibit right now that looks like a kite, but uh, it's not. So, sorry, but if you'd like to build a light sail kite and send us pictures, we'll be happy. Brilliant, brilliant suggestion. We might even throw in a rubber asteroid if you actually build a light sail kite. So uh, you can write to us at the same place, Planetary Radio at planetary.org. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what would you make a kite look like for fun. (laughs) Thank you, and good night. I would make a kite look like, well, there's a mountain somewhere in the solar system named Kaplan. That's what I would make it look like. I'd make it look like your face. (laughs) Well, face it, everybody. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Kind of cheeky, aren't you? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who dream big. It's a dream you can share at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta associate producers Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.